Do we have? Good. Okay, good, good. Just wanted to make sure I pushed the button hard enough. <laughs> well, welcome to the second week of the new year. And we're certainly trusting and hoping that 2021 will bring us some, perhaps some different experiences to the ones we had in 2020. Amen? <laughs> yeah. Okay. But one of the ways we want to start this year, and we actually mentioned it to the people we sent out our mailings, one of the ways we want to start this year is uh, with a focus, not an emphasis because we, we pray all year long, but we want to have a focus particularly on prayer as we begin the year and set, set us up. Uh, this we're calling Prayer Week 2021, and uh, we sent a handout to, uh, to a lot of our, of our church folks today by mail or email. And if you're watching this but you're not on an email list and you would like to have this handout, you could actually send a request to office at abbeybaptist.com, A-B-B-Y-B-A-P-T-I-S-T dot com. And uh, we'd be happy to email you a copy of this guide. Basically, this is a seven-day guide, mostly through what Jesus told us how to pray in John 17, but with other scriptures too, beginning with ourselves and our own lives and families, and then praying farther out from that to our church, praying for our missionaries, praying for our, our larger Christian community, extended family, our very community that we live in. So I'd encourage you, if you have not printed that off as a guide, to do that and follow it just, just in your quiet time, sometime this week, a little bit every day, and read the passages that, uh, thank you uh, to Abe Funk who put this together, and he has given us the Bible readings first, and then how we should pray as a result of that. That's one. The other opportunity we have for prayer is we, we began before Christmas, and that is on Saturdays and on Sunday afternoons. If you want to come and have a quiet time of contemplation and prayer on your own or as your, your bubble, if it's a husband, wife, that kind of thing, we'll have someone here. Barb will be here. And uh, you do have to, again, call ahead or email. If you have Barb's email address, for those of you who are part of our, our regular congregation, you can just email her. Or you can email office at abbeybaptist.com and we will forward your request for a time to Barb and she will get in touch with you. Um, we've had a few people coming in and finding that it really, uh, one of them said it felt so good because of the, the restrictions we have, we're living with, they actually were able to, uh, they said it was the first time they'd been in the building since last March. But they said it felt good. So if, if that would be of help to you, then by all means, do that. So we'll just pray briefly now, and then we'll turn our attention to God's Word. Father, thank you for this, this week. Lord, uh, this week is filled with days that you have made, and we will rejoice and be glad in them. But as we begin our year, as we think ahead to what we want to see in our year, our hopes, dreams, the things that you would like us to see as a church family, as a community of your people, how we can interact with our own community, how we can bless others, how we can tell them the good news about Jesus. Hear our prayers, Lord, and help us to take that time as we really engage with you because really what we are doing is acknowledging 
to ourselves, we are in your presence and you hear. And so, Lord, as we pray, we know you listen. But help us also, Father, as we pray, to take time to listen, to hear what you're saying back to us. And so, Lord, we just give you this week, and may it be a habit that doesn't, that doesn't end a week, eight days from now, but a habit that takes us through this year with that confidence of being really connected with you. And that's our prayer for today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a question for you to start. Um, quick fact check. Who wrote 13 of the 27 books in our New Testament? The Apostle Paul. Go to the head of the class. You're absolutely right. Paul, yeah, half, almost half of the New Testament was written by one apostle who had a dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus and who, after a time of study and a time of spending alone time with God, came into public ministry and started transforming the world. Uh, very, I don't think there are any missionaries that are better known than the Apostle Paul. He, he, he described himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. And he was singularly responsible for the expansion of the gospel out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, to reach all nations and not just the Jewish people. And you can see it if you look at this confusing map, which you see up on the screen now. You see it. There's squiggly lines everywhere. The colored lines represent Paul's three major journeys and finally his fourth journey traveling as a prisoner to Rome. He went all over the place. He was one busy guy. In those first three long journeys, he traveled all, the way, all around Israel through the Middle East. And then he went onto Cyprus. He went up into the Roman provinces that make up modern-day Turkey. And he went all throughout the whole Balkan Peninsula. And ultimately, as a prisoner, he ended up in Rome and being under house arrest for, for a number of years. He, also, he had plans to go to Spain too, but we don't know if he actually ever got there because there are no letters or, or documents uh, existing that, that suggest that he did. But he wanted to. Right to his last breath, he wanted the gospel to be spread. On the second of his three journeys, which is the orange line on the diagram, Paul, and with his companion and co-worker Silas, traveled from the east. He started out in Antioch, and he went east and up, and then west through Syria, and then into Cilicia. Cilicia. And on the second journey, he went and visited some cities that he had established churches on his first journey particularly Lystra and Derby, And if they're sort of in the, the bottom middle of the diagram, you'll see them there. And in, on that trip, he also added another young man to the team, a guy named Timothy. Yes. And Paul and, 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 and his team were really encouraged to see these growing churches in this area. But they started to wonder what to do next. Where should they go? They, they considered going to Ephesus, 
which was the leading city in, in the Roman province of Asia. And it was an important city. It was on the coast. And, and Paul had, had often focused on major centers like that that were located on the Roman roads and the travel routes. He, he focused on those. And, and it would have been straightforward to get there. Just a, a straight shot on the, the Roman road called the Via Sebast and head west. And besides, he wanted to go back. He probably had friends there anyway. He wanted to go back and see how they were doing. But he also was torn because he also wanted as many people as possible to, lo- to know the gospel, to hear the gospel. The thing is, God had other plans for Paul. God had other plans. Paul's path was going to be very different to what he imagined because he was, going to, he was about to find out that saying yes to God was going to open up a much, much larger area than just Asia. Welcome to the story of Philippians. For the next while, next month or two, we're going to be studying Paul's letter to this church at the city of Philippi. Philippians it was one of those letters that was primarily written by Paul so he could thank them for an, a, an, an extraordinary gift they had brought to him. He said he was greatly encouraged by it and he wanted to thank them. But Paul, being Paul, he can't just say thanks. He takes the opportunity to encourage them as well. Because as he listens to Epaphroditus who brought the gift, he t- finds out what's been going on in the church since he left. And he wants to t- tell them and encourage them. And I, I've got to say though, I think Philippians is one of the most encouraging letters in the whole New Testament. Maybe in the whole Bible. It, it bubbles over with one, one particular quality. Joy. Joy. Joy no matter what is happening. Joy, joy in, in all things. Unshakable joy. And that's what we're going to see as we go through this series in that book. So today is, is kind of, I guess we're going to call it the prequel because we're going to look at the story of how the church actually began and we're going to talk a little bit about the power of saying yes to God. So please pray with me as we begin. Father God, thank you for this. I know that this may be very familiar to many of us, but Lord, help us put it in perspective so that when we come next week to begin looking through the, uh, Paul's letter, we will, we will really, really understand more about this church. Be like a, a, a head start, if you will. So thanks, Jesus. Amen. So let's turn not to Philippians, but to the book of Acts, chapter 16, and read the story of how the church began. Acts chapter 16. We're going to start at verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Messiah, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Messiah and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, 
we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. <laughs> this was a very change of plans. The, this, this next little map is kind of a close-up of one area of that first one I showed you. Apologize for the blocks of color there. There was other detail in there I wanted to block out, but I couldn't figure out how to get rid of the little squares. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. The Holy Spirit prevented them. Doesn't that sound weird? The Holy Spirit prevented them from doing ministry? Prevented Paul and Silas and Timothy from preaching the gospel in that Roman province of Asia. Has God ever closed a door for you? You were, you were absolutely convinced. You really felt you started on the path. You went somewhere and, and all of a sudden you went like, this is not right. This is not working. I don't think this is what God wants to do. It can happen. It happened here. I, I don't know how it happened for you if it has. It, we aren't told exactly from this. We don't know how they knew that that door was closed. It just says that the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of God prevented them. But, but it, could have been, it could have been from opposition from the people. It could have been a direct word from God. Silas was actually a prophet in the church of Jerusalem. He may have had a word of knowledge from the Lord about it. We don't know. We just don't know. But since they couldn't go directly west into Asia, they decided to spend time in Phrygia and Galatia, which was to the north. Phrygia is part of Asia, that province. And it actually borders the, uh, the province of Galatia as well. So, so they went up to the north on the diagram and then over to the west, following that border between Messiah and Bithynia. Uh, Messiah was just a, a, a region of Asia. It wasn't a separate province itself. But, uh, but it was on the west side. And to the west of that was the Aegean Sea. And to the north of them was Bithynia and bordering onto the Black Sea. But prevented by the Spirit from going into Asia, they went north, probably right up into the order that borders Thrace. You'll see that on the map, I think. Where they would pick up another Roman road, the Via Ignatia, which was a really important east-west road. There were a lot of cities and ports on that, ports on the Black Sea, that they could visit. But, to their surprise, the Spirit of Jesus says no again. What's going on? Now, so what do they do next? Well, if they go east or south, that would take them back to Galatia and the towns they've already visited. They don't want to go that way. So they head west. But they bypass, they skirt around Messiah on the and stay on the road that leads to Troas. Troas, interesting town. Troas was a major seaport for Mycenae. It was actually built 300 BC by Alexander the Great. Uh, the original name was Alexandria Troas. But after his empire collapsed, um, the Seleucids from Syria came in and, uh, and, and took it over and it was ruled by, by them, sort of governed from Syrian Antioch. But later on it became an independent city-state. But it was a strategically important port at the mouth of 
we, what we still know today as the Dardanelles, the narrow strait that leads into another lake called the Sea of Marmara and connects the Aegean Sea to the Black Sea. And it's the route that all the traffic would have had to take in order to go to, um, at that time they called it Constantinople. Some of them called it Byzantium. Uh, we would know it today, well, sorry, it was, it's, it's, we know it today as Istanbul. Yeah. So Troas would have been a good place to do ministry. And, and yet, for some reason, Luke doesn't record anything of the gospel being shared there. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But they weren't there long. But Because while they were waiting, they must have wondered why the Lord led them there. Or maybe they wondered even if the Lord had led them there. They had walked, at this point, almost a thousand kilometers. And everywhere they tried to go into a new area, they got told no. And now they're at the seaport. What next? Have you ever had moments like that? You've been doing things, you feel you're following, you're on the right path, but you get frustrated. You know you want to share about Jesus, but the opportunities don't seem to come. And it feels like the doors are closed. But Paul and the team don't give up. It says they waited. And I'm sure they prayed. And as they wait, Paul has this vision of a man standing on the shores of Macedonia across the Aegean Sea begging, pleading for them to come and bring the gospel. And they say they concluded that God had called them to preach the gospel to the Macedonians. They concluded it was God's will. Uh, over the years, uh, I've, I've run into a few people who, 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 well, they kind of obsess over determining God's will for their lives as, only, as if there's only one exact perfect will and if they don't find it, they could be doing all sorts of things and be out of God's will. And they obsess over it. And they live in fear of making decisions sometimes because they're afraid that they might make the wrong one and then they wouldn't be in God's will. And as a result, that can, that can be paralytic. You stand still a lot. You're afraid to do anything. You're afraid to step out. Afraid to take risks. Paul and his companions did not do that. They didn't still in Antioch down in Syria and wait for God to say something. They went out on a mission. They did what they knew to be correct and good, which was telling people about Jesus at every opportunity. And the Holy Spirit directed them as they went. Ah, as they went. Paul knew God's will for his life. His mission, not the same as everyone's, his mission was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. What he was doing now was trying to determine where God wanted them to stop. Not that, they wanted him to, that he wanted them to go, but where to stop. He was listening for the leading of the Holy Spirit. Did the Spirit speak to him audibly? We don't know. Or was it through impressions in their minds? Or 
they, they experienced such strong opposition from the local townsfolk, they couldn't work there and concluded God was moving them on. Can't answer those questions. And Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, does not tell us. But what we do know is that they recognized at each point that it was the Holy Spirit at work preventing them, directing them. And so when Paul does have the vision as they're sitting in Troas, he concludes that it's God and they set out across the Dardanelles for Macedonia. This is a great example, I think, of how God leads people. God rarely, if ever, directs us in a binding flash from heaven. That happened to the Apostle Paul, but there's very few people that are directed that directly. Our powers of reason are involved in the process. We, we don't passively sit and wait for God to tell us what to do. Many times we get to know God's will and confirm God's will as we read and study the scriptures and as we devote time to prayer and as we listen to him and as we step out listening to him as we go. And in the meanwhile, as we go through that process, we continue to do the things that we know are always God's will. Showing compassion to people. Looking after widows and orphans in their distress, as James wrote. Sharing the gospel. God is always speaking to us. The question is, are we listening? Are we hearing what God is saying to us? Okay, let's read on. We'll finish the, the reading for today. Uh, verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home, to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, Come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. She persuaded us. I think she persuaded us to come and she persuaded them that she was indeed a believer in the Lord. Now Macedonia uh, from, from uh, Troas is about 250 kilometers. It would be a trip, uh, the, ease, uh, the best mileage you could get if you had a good wind uh, would be about a two-day trip. The first place they actually go is an island called Samothrace, which is about halfway, where they would uh, uh, stop, a sort of a stopover port, because night travel was dangerous. They must have had really good wind, because the trip only takes two days for Paul. Uh, on, the, on this third mission, when he's coming back, he goes back the other way. He comes through, through Philippi, and he comes through over to Troas from the other direction. It took him five, so he must have had headwinds or something like that. 
So they would land at a city called Neapolis. If you Google Neapolis today, you see a modern, huge city. It is huge. It wasn't that big then, but it still is a commercial port for that area. And it was a commercial port when Paul was visiting. It was the main port for the city of Philippi, although most of the people lived in Philippi and, and Neapolis was just the port at that, at that time. It's also on the Via Ignatia, which is the main east-west road that goes all the way through uh, far, as far east as what we know was Constantinople and all the way west through Philippi, through Macedonia to Thessalonica, which was the capital city of Macedonia, and right across the whole Balkan Peninsula to the port of Ignatia on the Adriatic coast. That's why it's the Via Ignatia. It goes all the way to that city. Philippi was about 16 kilometers inland uh, to the northwest from Neapolis. And the area was a rich plain with rivers on either side. And it was quite sheltered, shielded from the sea. It was actually originally designated a Roman colony in 42 BC, which meant that it was self-governed and they answered directly to the emperor and no one else. It was known for a number of things. First of all, it's agriculture products. And second, gold mines, <laughs> which would certainly attract people. It was a strategic location at the intersection of the sea and the land routes through the whole region. It was a crossroads. It was a crossroads. It also had a, very, a respected school of medicine. There's an interesting shift here in the language. If you're reading, it says Luke, Luke had been talking about, about Paul and Silas and Timothy. He says, they came to the border, but the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow them to enter Bithynia. But in verse 10, all of a sudden the narrative gets personal. He says, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave. And from Troas, we put out to sea. In verse 12, from there we traveled to Philippi. Luke joined the trip and was there when Paul went to Philippi. Uh, background of the Apostle Luke, or Luke the writer, he was a physician, he was a doctor, and he was familiar with Philippi. This might have been where he actually took his medical training. He knows enough about the city, he knows it well. He would know, for example, that there was no synagogue. If there were 12 male heads of households, sorry, it's the way it was in the first century. If there were 12 male heads of households, they had to start a synagogue. There was no synagogue here. Very small Jewish population. A few, a few people who had made their way there, perhaps over from Thyatira. If there was no synagogue, the Jewish worshipers would gather outside the city under open sky, near a river, or near the sea. And so Paul knows this. He goes outside the city gates to where he expects to find the prayer meeting on the Sabbath. And women were gathered there. And this is actually a picture of, I looked up the pronunciation, it doesn't sound right, it's the Gangites River. That, that doesn't, about everywhere I see, that, I would have said Gangates or something like that. No, it's the Gangites River. But that's, right outside the city, that photograph. About two kilometers west, actually. Would have been a likely place for prayer. And I think about it. You know, you think about Psalm 23. 
It says, He leads me beside quiet waters. He, he leads me to, to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Quiet waters. What a great place to sit and just meet with God. The service would have followed uh, a typical or similar order to the synagogue worship. All Jewish worship services started by reading what we know is from Deuteronomy 6. It's called the Shema. And in, in Hebrew it says, Shema Israel Adonai Elohenu Adonai Achad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That starts every synagogue service. Every synagogue service. Then they'd set a prayer. They would actually pray a, a set of prayers. It was actually um, a set of prayers uh, called the Shemana Esrei. It, it was a series of 18 blessings that was divided into uh, praise and petition or requests and thanks. Kind of the way we would still pray to God, praise first. Maybe can add confession there for us, then petition and thanks. After that, they would read from the, Mose, the books of Moses, the law, and the other prophetic writings, the rest of the Old Testament, our Old Testament, the prophets. And then they would discuss the readings. And if there was hap- happened to be a traveling rabbi visiting, he might be invited to bring a word. And they'd finish after this, that, they'd finish with a blessing. Traveling rabbi. Do we know any traveling rabbis that are in the area? Yeah, that kind of describes Paul kind of perfectly. What an opportunity for him to share the good news about Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Messiah. As he sat down, as it says, he sat down to speak with them. One of the women named Lydia was listening. Lydia lived in Philippi, but Luke tells us she was originally from Thyatira. And that was um, famous for its purple dyes and its cloth dyeing industry. And Lydia was one of those artisans. She was a dealer in purple cloth and had probably come originally to Philippi to set up a business. There aren't any men mentioned in the story. So we could probably assume that she was either unmarried or perhaps widowed. But she's described as, in our new NIV, as a worshiper of God. Literally, she's described in the original language as a God-fearer, which was a term used of Gentiles who would attend or become connected with Jewish populations and Jewish synagogue worship. She was, in other words, she was a Gentile respecter of God who had been drawn to Judaism, probably in her hometown of Thyatira. She believes, she believed what Paul told her because God opened her heart to the gospel. She said yes to God. She responded in faith. And everyone, she and everyone in her household, would have been children, servants, everything, everyone believed and were baptized. And then she opens her home. And her home actually became the center for Christian outreach and worship in Philippi. That's where the church started. That's where the church of Philippi was born. 
And so Lydia is in our book, in Acts, and in, she is here. She is the very first convert to Christ in the continent of Europe. The very first. All of us can look at our spiritual heritage back to her and the people who came to Christ after her. Uh, her conversion and the establishment of the church took place around A.D. 50 or 51. So this is about 16 or 17 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. The church grew rapidly, but not without opposition. Uh, the, the next account, and we're not going to read into it here, but from, from verse uh, 16 on, is the, is the account of Paul and Silas being dragged before judges by, by the owners of a slave girl. who had a, The slave girl had a spirit by which she predicted the future. And Paul was so annoyed at this, he commanded the spirit come out, to come out and leave her, and the spirit did. So the owners were really, really ticked because they had lost their possible or potential income because the spirit was helping her predict the future. They're so annoyed that they falsely accused Paul and Silas of advocating, quote, customs unlawful to, for Romans to accept or practice. That is a farce. There was nothing in what Paul said that was unlawful to what he was doing. At that point, Judaism and Christianity were not banned. They were, they were, they were, they were tolerated. They were allowed to, to meet. So, Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. Uh, we don't have any pictures of them in prison, obviously, but these are the ruins of the prison at the Philippi excavation. They have discovered and excavated the entire town site. And this is the prison. There's a little tiny sign you can see uh, there. can't see it, and I'm sure you can't read it. But the sign basically says, Prison of, prison of the Apostle Paul. <laughs> yeah. Now, their account of the release, their release from prison and how the Philippian jailer and his household were converted is from Acts 16, 25 to 40. And those events, Lydia and her household, this was the start of the church. They were probably among the earliest members, Lydia and the jailer and his family. By the time Paul wrote this letter, the letter of the Philippians to them, this church had been not only growing and sharing the gospel in their town, it had also been sending missionaries and sending help to other people. And so Paul wrote this letter that we'll be getting into starting next week as a thank you for one of those gifts that they had sent to him, delivered to him by this man named Epaphroditus. Now, if you, were to read, if you were to read the whole letter of Philippians in one sitting, and that would be a good thing, by the way, if you were to read the whole letter in one sitting, at an ordinary reading speed, it would only take you 20 to 25 minutes. Very, and you just don't stop to think too long or go to consult the, 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 uh, the, the, the study guides and things. Just if you read it through as you were reading a letter from one, one man to a church. It would take you about 20 minutes. What you would come away with was this strong impression that this, 
this was probably one of the most loved congregations that Paul ever started. He, just, he loved these people. At, and Philippians is one of the most encouraging letters in the Bible. And my hope is that by the time we're done, it, it'll be one of our most loved letters too. There's, there's, there, there are phrases in each chapter of the four chapters of Philippians that some of us have taken out and printed and put on walls or put on our mirrors. And, and if, as soon as I said them, you'd go, oh, right, that's Philippians, of course. There are some themes in the book. And so between now and the middle of March, we're going to be, we're going to be encouraged by Paul. And I think we're going to be challenged by him just a little bit too. Here's the themes. First of all, and we've already mentioned it, joy. <laughs> Paul uses the word joy or rejoicing or gladness 19 times in this little letter. 19 times. That's one of the unusual things. I don't think it shows up in any other letter as many times. Another interesting fact, a bit of a rabbit trail, Philippians is the only letter Paul wrote that does not quote any Old Testament scriptures. Yeah, interesting, yeah. Joy. Um, a joy that would, that'll permeate everything. Joy even in suffering, he writes in chapter 1. Joy in, joy in serving. Joy, joy that sustains us through all things. And that's why we're calling this series an unshakable joy. Second, he talks about the importance of, of the way we approach things, of our attitudes, of our mindset. I know that's a 20th century, 21st century word. But our mindset, our attitude, our mind. Um, a lot of things that we encounter can rob us of joy. It's just like taking a bucket of water and putting it on the flames sometimes. And Paul gives us what he calls the secret. And he says it has largely to do with the way we think, with our attitude. And he repeats the word mind ten times in this letter. And he repeats think five times. Now, I want a disclaimer here. Philippians isn't a Christian self-help book that tries to convince us that everything will always just turn out all right. It's a book that describes the mind that we have to have if we're going to experience God's joy in a world that is filled with trouble. Jesus himself said, in this world, you, we, will have trouble. But he said, take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul would echo that and say, yeah, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13. That's one of those verses that's on somebody's mirror. I know it is. That's the second. Third is the importance of imitating Jesus, the example of Jesus in humility, in obedience. So it begins, this whole letter begins with saying yes. Paul said yes to God's plan, took him to Troas, obediently crossing over there. The church in Philippi began when Lydia said yes to salvation in Jesus alone, the good news of Jesus, when God opened her heart and when, God, when Paul spoke. The Philippian church grew as others, the jailer, those who joined them, said yes to Jesus too. It began there, but it didn't end there. 
It goes all the way to here. There's a story. And as these stories go, we're not sure if it's anecdotal or if it actually happened. But a guy who, who believed he could tell exactly where God wanted him to go. And the way he did it was he carried a small stick with him as he walked along the road. And when he'd come to a fork in the road, he'd throw the stick in the air, and whatever way the stick was pointing when it landed was the direction he would take. One day, he took a friend along with him, and they got to a fork in the road, and he threw the stick up in the air, and every time it landed, it pointed the same way, the fork to the left. But he kept throwing it in the air. His friend asks, why? Why, why do you keep throwing it in the air? He said, because the stick says go left, but I want to go right. But that can be us sometimes. So, saying yes to God may take us in an unexpected direction. So when we pray over decisions, be careful that we don't pray that, and that we're that we aren't asking God just to agree with us. We're not asking God to give his stamp of approval on what we want to do. We want to do what God already approves and wants us to do. And if God closes a door for you, I can tell you personal experience. The hardest thing to not do sometimes is to try to force the door open. It's a mugs game. God doesn't want you to go there. Don't go there. There are times when we, we hear really clearly from God. There, there's no doubt regarding His will in a particular situation. There's other times that we know we have to wait on the Lord for, for guidance and direction. But there are also times when after we've, we've sought after God's and we've, we've we're seeking his, his direction, and we're not getting a specific yes or, or no. In those times, we should stay the course, but being careful to do what we know is always true in his will. Uh, that's what Paul did. And when the, the answer finally came that night in Troas, in his vision, he acted, and the church in Europe was born. Actually, in Troas... The destination was finally revealed. But in fact, God had, or Paul had been following God's will the whole time. By the way, closed doors don't always stay closed. Paul eventually did return to Ephesus and get into the province of Asia there. Just not on that particular journey. And the gospel did spread through the whole reason. Sometimes a region, region. Sometimes a no isn't a solid no. Sometimes it's a not yet no. Because he got back there eventually. But what a difference a yes makes. And what encouragement we are going to get from this little letter to the Philippians over the next eight or nine weeks. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord for those who have said yes to you as you opened their hearts in places like Philippi. Because Lord, if they hadn't said yes, we wouldn't be here. But they did. 
and as we hear how they learned to have contentment in all circumstances, and not only to be content, but to have joy. We pray that we will learn those same lessons so that we can share that unshakable joy in knowing you that sustained and encouraged Paul and all these early followers of Jesus. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.